0: Okay, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, pray. God our Father, Lord, we are so thankful for the privilege that we have to gather here this morning with all of your holy saints. Lord, to open up your holy word and to hear your word proclaimed and explained. God, we pray that you would open our eyes. Grant us light in our hearts and in our minds, God, that we might see clearly, that everything may become visible to us. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of having your word and uh, being able to freely proclaim it in this place. We thank you, God, for all that you have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that he did indeed pay the penalty for our sins in His body on the tree, and that, God, He has granted us eternal life, even a perfect righteousness with You, Lord, that we even have the surpassing riches of Your grace. Lord, these things are wonderful, and we praise You, and glorify We thank you for all of the good work that you're doing in our life, Lord, changing us, transforming us, and making us like Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would continue that good work and help us, Lord, to see here in these pages how we are to behave in the household of God. I pray, Father, that you would just uh, impress these things upon our hearts, Lord. May they be there as an everlasting memorial. God. May they be as frontlets before our eyes. We thank you, Lord, for your holy commands, for your righteous statutes and precepts. I pray, Father God, that they would be the great delight of our hearts. We thank you for all that you're doing in us, and we thank you for all that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, A couple of things I want to say, again, Uh, I want to mention about comments in the class. We have such a large class. If you have comments, please make sure that these comments are going to add to the content of the lesson. Make sure that your comments are according to wisdom and that they are worthy of respect and not worthy of reproof because you may wind up getting reproof if you bring comments that uh, are not according to the truth. We're, we're not here to listen to folly. And so uh, please, if you have comments, make sure that they're comments that add and uh, edify us and build us up. Um, and I also want to just ask you to, to limit them. What happens is, is we kind of get on a hot topic then I get like six or eight or ten people raising their hand, and I just can't call on everybody. We'll, we'll be here all day just to hear those comments. So if you have something to say, please do. But try to make it brief, and, and if you see a lot of people raising their hand, try to refrain. Uh, undoubtedly, we touched a hot button there. People are going off. <laughs> but um, I, I also want to say that, you know, as we come to the class here... We're here to learn from God, which means that wherever you are in your spiritual walk, wherever you are in your spiritual life, I'm hoping and I'm praying and I'm diligently studying so that when when I present this material to you, it will challenge you wherever you are in your faith. And so you should come expecting to be challenged. You, You should come expecting to be uncomfortable by the things you hear. It should push you out of your comfort zone. And it should bring conviction upon your heart. Because this is the holy word of God. And, and friends, uh, although we are holy in the sight of God positionally, we are not holy yet practically. And and, and uh, especially in this section of text where it's very dealing very practically with our lives, many of these things can be very convicting. But you need to understand, that's the reason we're coming to Bible class. We are coming to hear the Word of God so that we can carefully obey it. And I'm going to be very strongly exhorting you to do exactly that. And sometimes these things are intense. Sometimes they are hard to hear. Sometimes it hits us right in our pride. And, uh, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to have ears to hear and eyes to see what God is saying. And uh, I just want to encourage you. Many times you'll come to the class and you think, how can I live up to this standard? And and the answer is, you can't. You can't live up to this standard. It's a supernatural, holy standard in and of yourselves. Right? But we can do all things through Him who gives us strength. And God has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness through our knowledge of Him. And the Spirit indwells us and He empowers us. In fact, it's His very ministry to do that good work of perfection in our lives, right? So, you, you, you should come and you should be challenged and you should think, how am I ever going to get there? And that's when you're going to cry out with Paul and you're going to say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, right? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen, And that's where you're going to find the strength. That's where you're going to find the supernatural power to live out the commandments of God. Amen? And so make no mistake about it. We come here, we're in this section of Ephesians. We are learning how we behave ourselves in the household of God. And it should be challenging. And and I hope that it is. I hope that it is. And... um, I just wanted to say that. You know, we're, here we are. We're we're learning uh, how to go from that carnal state that we were in when we were saved to being the holy church of Jesus Christ. And uh, undoubtedly, we've got a long way to go. Amen? So when you come, come eager to be challenged. Come eager to learn. And uh, And I think you'll get the most out of it. Right here, uh, I'm going to go ahead and hit the tape Okay, so being back in our study of Ephesians, last week we got uh, basically through Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6. I'm going to go ahead and and read for you to bring the context to our lesson. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. Which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Amen. So there we are in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 again, and uh, I just want to kind of take you back chapter 4, and consider now that we've gotten into this latter half of the book, and Paul is describing to us the practice of the Christian life. Remember in chapter 4, he starts there by giving commandments and telling us how to live and telling us how to practically behave in the church. And you remember that uh, uh, right about verse 17, he says... um, He says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Right? And so he's, he's telling the church, he says, you can no longer live like the Gentiles. And so he goes into this big, long discourse about the holiness of Christian life. And that, if you will, is, is uh, beginning there in chapter 4, verse 17. And it goes on through Ephesians uh, 5, verse 20. And if you will, he's talking about all these practical issues in life that we face as Christians. And and in so doing, he begins to draw these contrasts. And this is this chart that I made for you. And you can see the contrast of the old life of the Gentiles, of the old self, of the old man. And how Paul is drawing a contrast and talking about the holy, righteous living of a Christian. And he's, he's drawing those contrasts all through this section, okay? And, of course, we've talked about that at great length. just want to kind of get your mind refreshed about those things because today's verses, the contrast is going to be between light and darkness. And he's going to apply those things to the way we live our life. And he's going to apply those things to our old Gentile way of life, and our new way of life in Christ, being imitators of God. And uh, he's going to talk about how we are in all of these ways, in all of these practical matters, our life is to conform to Christ. And he does that by showing us these contrasts. Um, It's very important for us to see here and understand the great contrast between the church and the world. There is a great contrast between the church and the world. The church is the holy dwelling place of God. The church is that holy temple in the Lord, as he told us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. She's a holy church, she's sanctified, she's set apart, she is like God is, pure, righteous. Good. She's the pillar and ground of the truth, Paul says in another place. And we have got to begin to see ourselves like who we are. Amen? And that's what Paul is saying. He's very practically addressing who we are. We are a holy people, we are beloved children of God, he says. And in, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, he says, Live a life of love, he says, and be imitators of God. He's calling us to a supernatural standard of life. He's saying, you go out and you live like God lives. You act like God acts. You think like God thinks, he says. Be imitators of God. That's a high and holy calling. But that is our calling in Christ. We can't just... Sweep everything under the rug, friends. It's time to let the light of the truth of God's word shine into the deep recesses of your heart where everything becomes visible and everything is open and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's time to come out of the darkness and come into the light. That is, if indeed you are children of light. Amen? And so these are very strong exhortations that the Apostle Paul gives us. And, of course, we've been looking at this section of text, Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 5, where it says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather the giving of thanks, he says. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Could his language be any stronger in saying that these things here are to be put off, that they're not even to be named among us? They are improper. They are not fitting. And anybody, he says, who lives like this does not have any inheritance in the kingdom of God they're very strong exhortations okay. and so the idea is we need to hear it with the force of the words could Paul say anything that would make this a stronger exhortation when he says these things must not even be named among us And when he says, it is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. Listen to the force of the words in this passage. Well, we get down past that section where he's dealing with those sins of immorality and impurity and greed, which is idolatry. And we get to this little section of text in verses 7 through 14. And there... Paul is drawing a contrast between light and darkness. He's going to go into this whole thing about light and darkness. And I want to tell you just a, just a minute in, in preparing to, to grab a hold of this. Light in the scripture has many different uh, uses. It's, it's used to portray things differently. When you consider what light is in the scripture, intellectually... Light is equivalent to truth. Light is equivalent to truth. But when you consider light in the scripture morally, it is equivalent to holiness. Okay, And the scripture uses light very frequently in a moral sense to talk about morality, to talk about purity of life, to, to talk about holiness of behavior. And I'm going to show you several scriptures where, where that is. But uh, here, again, Paul, in addressing our behavior in Ephesians, is is going to bring this contrast to bear. And so here, even though there is a sense in which this light is an intellectual light of truth, it, it is more properly, here in this section, uh, a moral concept. It's a moral concept. He's calling us to practical holy behavior, okay? And you see that by the surrounding context. Uh, The whole second half of chapter 4, he's talking about how we behave, what we do, what we don't do, how we live, how we don't live. And then we get into chapter 5, and he's doing the very same thing. He's saying, live a life of love, he says, right? And he says, don't let these sins even be named among you, right? And then he goes into this section of text here. And uh, starting in chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Okay, and so here he says, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. With who? Well, go back to verse 5, right? with the immoral or the impure person or the covetous man who is an idolater. He says, do not be a partaker with them. Did that one sink in? Christians aren't to be partakers with immoral persons and impure persons and covetous, idolatrous persons. We are not to partake of the things they partake of. In fact, they're not even to be named among us. They're improper among saints. They're not fitting. Okay? Now, I want you to see here, and I'm going to show you a a lot of scripture from the New Testament that really deals with this concept. I think one one of the things that, as we're growing and maturing as a Christian, it's difficult for us to understand how we are to have different kinds of relationships. You know, as a Christian, you're going to have relationships with unbelievers and you're going to have relationships with believers. And if you will, there are some differences in the way that the scripture uh, describes to us uh, how we interact with believers and unbelievers. And there's a different set of standards that are applied in dealing with believers and dealing with unbelievers. And uh, it's very interesting what, what Paul says here. Listen to what he's saying. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Okay? He's not saying don't associate with them. What is he saying? He's saying don't be partakers with them. Don't partake of the things they partake of. Don't participate with them in the things that they do. Okay? Because it is of these things that the wrath of God is coming. It is these things which have, have brought death and despair on the creation. Okay? And he says you cannot participate with them in these things. If you have an NKJV or a KJV or even a, uh, uh, a Revised Standard Version, those all say, have no fellowship with the deeds of darkness. Okay, and uh, the the word there, you're familiar with the word koinonia, koinonia. is the word fellowship, the the, the word for Christian loving fellowship. This word here in the Greek is is a word that's very much like that. Um, when it says do not uh, participate or do not be partakers, that word is uh, sugg koinonia, koinonia, and and it has to do with with uh, with participating in. And that's why the NAS translates it that way. Do not participate in these deeds. Okay, so you need to understand. He's not saying, go live in a commune somewhere out in the middle of the desert. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't participate and partake in their deeds, in their wickedness, because that would be contrary to imitating God. Amen? So, if you will, he's pointing to the sin and not necessarily the sinner, right? But, of course, we've got to be very careful. It's not like uh, uh, we're going to hang out with a brood of vipers because before long, what's going to happen? Right. And bad company corrupts what? Good morals. Good character. Right? So don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you to go start hanging out at the local bar. Okay, But the point is, it is the deeds of darkness that we are not to have fellowship with. Okay, And I want you to make that distinction in the text there. He says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Don't partake in the things they partake in. Again, Paul stressing the importance of separation from evil deeds and the lifestyles of unbelievers. But here he says, because we have been made new. We were darkness, but now are light in the Lord. You see, we've had a fundamental change. We're no longer darkness, and no longer are we in darkness. But in fact, we are light in the Lord. Did not Jesus say to us that we, then, are the light of the world, even as he is? Amen? And he says, now that now we're light. Therefore, we cannot participate in the deeds of darkness, right? We've, we've undergone a change. Because we are light, we can no longer be partakers of the deeds of darkness. That would be to deny who we are, if indeed we are light in the Lord. Can you be light in the Lord and go around living in the deeds of darkness? What fellowship has light with the darkness? you with me? That's why we as Christians, we've got to be very careful how we live. We've got to be careful what we do. we got to be careful what we say. we got to be careful what we think. Why? Because we bear the name of the Holy God. We're His children. We're His beloved children. And now we have become light in a dark world. And we've got to be careful how we manifest that light before the world. Amen? We're God's holy people. The theme of darkness and light in the New Testament is commonly associated with the behavior of unbelievers, which is characterized by sin, and the behavior of believers, which is characterized by holiness. I want to show you a few places in the Scripture where this contrast of light and darkness is used morally in this sense. And and Jesus, of course, in Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And He's saying, look, there you are, my holy family, for all the world to see. I'm not going to put you under a bushel. I'm going to set you on a hill for everybody to see your life and to see the holiness of your life. People are watching. Is God being glorified. Amen? Look at Philippians 2.14. There Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. You see what Paul's saying? He says, you you appear as lights in the world. Therefore, you have to be blameless and innocent. You can't do things with grumbling and disputing, he says. You're appearing as a light in the world. And he says the same thing here. He says, don't partake with immoral, impure, or greedy persons, he says. Because now you are light in the Lord. And there is a fruit of light that is to be coming from your life. Amen? And that fruit is goodness and righteousness and truth, he says. Look at 2 Corinthians 6.14. There Paul says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Familiar with that scripture? He goes on... Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you you hear those words? The church is to be separate. Separate from sin. There should be a great contrast from your life and the life of an unbeliever. You shouldn't look just like your neighbor next door. Your life should be vastly different. You with me? Think about it. Do you look just like your neighbor? Your unbelieving neighbor? Or is there a great difference in the way that you live? Are you now light in the Lord? And is that visible for all to see? Is it evident? Is it like a city that we ought to set on a hill for all to see? Are we really appearing as lights in the world? It's an interesting... uh... Contrast that Paul draws. How about Romans thirteen? Look at Romans thirteen. This idea of light and darkness in a moral sense. He says in uh, Romans thirteen twelve, The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And let us what? Behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. You see what Paul's saying? He says, put off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then he explains what he means by that. He says, uh, uh, behave properly not in carousing and drunkenness. You know, that's what the world's all about. If there's any words that describe this modern American culture, carousing and drunkenness, even right up to the top, the most respected public officials, carousing and drunkenness. Right? How about this one? Sexual promiscuity and sensuality. It's a disease in our culture. It's everywhere you look. Have you thought about what sensuality is? Sensuality is the disease that's in our culture that tempts everybody to involve themselves in sexual promiscuity. This, Paul says, is not even to be named among the church. Think about it. In the way you live. In the way you dress. In the way that you speak, he says, there must be no filthiness, right? No sensuality in our words. No sensuality in our life. We're not to behave that way. He says, not in strife and in jealousy. Not in strife and in jealousy. Those words shouldn't describe our life. Because we're no longer darkness. Now we're light in the Lord. We're children of the light. The virtuous glories of God should be manifested in our behavior in the way that we live. Amen? This is throughout the New Testament. I just grabbed a few scriptures like that. But this, this contrast of light and darkness being used... Um, in a moral sense. The Apostle John does this in the book of 1 John several times. Several times he's using a contrast. He says, you know, in the very first of the book, he says, God is light, he says, and in him there is no darkness at all. And they're speaking of God's moral purity. Right? And of course, he begins to use that analogy all through the book, describing how we ought to live and how we are to be separate from sin. The church is to be separate from from sin, That's the point here. Now we are light in the Lord. And we are to um, not be partakers with the deeds of darkness, right? Instead, we are to be children of the light. Walk then, he says, as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now think about how Paul's been making these contrasts all the way through this section of text, okay? And he gets right here, and look at his contrasts. Here again, three contrasts with the former life of the Gentiles and the new life of the Christian. He talks about what brings the wrath of God, right? Let no immorality, impurity, or greediness, or covetousness, right? He says those things bring the wrath of God. He says, instead, you are to uh, try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Not what angers him, not what brings his wrath, but what pleases him. You see the contrast? Not like this, not like this immorality, not like these things which inflame the wrath of God, he says, but those things which are pleasing to the Lord. He says, try to learn what they are. Try to learn what they are. What are you spending your time on, Christian? Here in a minute, he's going to say, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walk in wisdom. Amen? It's time to wake up from our slumber. The night is almost over. The day is almost here. Jesus is at the doorstep. May he find us holy chaste, pure in his sight. Amen? He also has this contrast of the fruitful walk as children of light, or what he calls the unfruitful deeds of darkness, right, in verse 11. And do not participate, he says, in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. He says you're to have fruitful deeds of light. Your deeds ought to be productive. They ought to be fruitful. They ought to be beneficial, not the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Another contrast here is immorality, impurity, and covetousness. And that's contrasted with what? Goodness and righteousness and truth. You see that? He says there should be no immorality, no impurity, no greediness among you, right? Instead, he says. Walk as children of the light. And the fruit of the light, he says, is goodness and righteousness and truth. You see that contrast? It's amazing how clear the Word of God is here in talking about what our life should look like practically. Amen? It's very comprehensive. It just about addresses every little single thing that we face in our life. Every kind of circumstance. Every kind of behavior is addressed here. And it's drawn a contrast against that old way of the sinful self. Amen? And he explains very clearly then what it means to be an imitator of God. You want to be an imitator of God, he says? Walk in goodness and righteousness and truth. And don't even once ever let it have immorality or impurity or greed even named among you it's not fitting he says it's improper for saints amen here we are exhorted to live like who we are children of light and this life will produce the fruit of light in our lives which is goodness and righteousness and truth okay these words the, the word goodness is God's character or virtue it is in the Greek the word agathosune, agathosune, and it means goodness or virtue or beneficent, beneficence. It is beneficence, beneficence. Okay, it is that it is that good disposition of God. His goodness, right? There's two sides of that. One side of goodness is the opposite of evil. Amen? And so Paul says in Romans, he says, hate what is evil, he says, and cling to what is good. You know, and if you're a person of goodness, then you hate what is evil, just like God does. As a matter of fact, what defines the word evil is the opposite of what is good. Goodness brings definition to evil. And evil contrasted with goodness causes us to see it. Okay? Goodness, God's character or his virtue. Or how about righteousness? This is the Greek word diakasune. Diakasune. And it means equity of character or act, especially justification, all right? Or A right standing with God. A right standing with God. Righteousness. We are righteous in our standing before God, he says. Right? This is a fruit that comes from our life as a Christian. Righteousness. Are you angered when there is injustice? You should be. You ought to hate what is unjust. when you see the poor robbed you should be what is that righteousness which is of God what is that disposition of God what is that equity of his character this Paul says is to be a fruit that comes from our life this righteousness of God truth truth here is the word aletheia. Aletheia, that's the word in the New Testament used for truth in many, many places. <clears throat> that which is true. Or the idea of verity, right? Truth, he says, is a fruit that is to come from our life. Now consider your life. Is there truth hanging on the branches? Hopefully, if you're children of light, right? The fruit of that light is what? Goodness and righteousness and truth. But I want you to see this contrast that Paul is about to draw here. Look what he says. He says, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And Look what he says now do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness but instead even expose them but instead even expose them now think about your life in this sense that it's a life that exposes the unfruitful deeds of darkness how does it do that it does that by goodness and righteousness and truth that's how see that How often are we silent when we should speak? Thought about that one? Goodness and righteousness and truth, these are the fruit of the light. And look what he says. We are further exhorted to try and learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We are ever and continually learning what pleases God so that we may conform our lives to it, always seeking to know the will of God for our lives that we may do it. And this is a theme in the New Testament. This reverberates, especially through the writings of Paul. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, he says there, But examine everything carefully, he says. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. You hear Paul's teaching there? Listen to what he's saying. He says, examine everything in your life carefully, he says. Right? Right? Examine it and do what with it? Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. Amen? Boy, these things are so clear. How a Christian is to live his life. Examining everything carefully. Chunking what is evil and holding fast to that which is good. Amen? Romans 12:2, Of course, very familiar scripture. He says, Do not be conformed to this world... But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And the idea there of proving is that you may be able to discern. Right? He says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you'll be able to discern what God's good and pleasing will is. You see how Paul is saying that same thing in Ephesians? He's saying trying to learn, he says, what is pleasing to the Lord. What are you reading your Bible for? Is that just your duty every day? Because you know a good Christian ought to read his Bible at least 10 minutes a day? Or whatever? You with me? It's not just a duty, friends. It's the bread of life. Because man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by the words that come from the mouth of God. Amen? Amen? That's food for your soul when you open up that Word. Amen? And we're in there trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We're seeking after that diligently. We're seeking for it as for hidden treasure. We're crying out for insight. Amen? Our heart is focused on the precepts of God. It is our great longing to hear His statutes and His commands. Because in that is food for the soul. The substance of life. What causes us to live is the moral virtue of God which is contained here in His Holy Word. Amen? And so here's a a great thing for a Christian. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Examine your life carefully, Paul says. Right? And hold fast to that which is good. And abstain from every form of evil. Amen? Read in this book and find all the sins that are in your life. And then get them right out there in front of you. And forsake them with everything that you have. Amen? Deal with those issues. You know, you're having a difficult time in your marriage. You're having a difficult time getting along. You're having a difficult time with life. Look, get that stuff out on the plate and deal with it. Those are alarms going off in your life, saying, hey, we got problems here. You with me? How are you going to deal with that, Christian? What are you going to do? Are you going to live in jealousy and strife? Are you going to live in, in anger and disputing? Or are you the children of peace? And does God's Word have any power in your marriage? Does it have any power in your family to change you and to conform you into the image of Christ? What are you doing when you read that Bible? are going in there and you're trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So that you may be diligent to do it. Amen? Then it will go well with you. And you'll live long in the land. Amen? And your clothes won't wear out. And you'll live in houses you didn't build. And you'll eat from vineyards you didn't plant. And your cows will grow fat and have lots of babies. Amen? Listen, all of that stuff is in direct correspondence to your obedience to the Word of God. Don't don't think for one minute that God is going to be mocked. Don't think for one minute that you're going to live a sinful life in, in your home and the blessing of God is going to live there. That is not going to happen. God will see to it. You with me? God help us. God help us. And hey, if you got some of those warning signs going off, listen, here's all you gotta do: humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. And in due time, He'll lift you up. You go into that word with a humble heart and you say, God, I got problems here. I need your help. Please help me. You know what? It is God's delight to be your God and to come to your aid and to deliver you. The scripture says he's a very present help in time of trouble. He's a refuge and a strength for all who call upon him. Amen. I mean, you got the resources of God. Don't 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 let the devil ruin your days here. God's offering you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And you you should see your life being changed into that, friends. And if you're not, you need to get back to the cross and get saved. need to become that dwelling place of god and you should see that fruit in your life amen and here it's the fruit of goodness and righteousness and truth carlos Ready forgiveness, Amen. I mean, God is so disposed to forgive, Amen. And and you know, one of the one of the most glorious things is is after you sin and you go to God for forgiveness, and the love and the mercy of God just washes over you, it, it just it 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 just magnifies the mercy of God and the grace of God, Amen. God is so disposed to forgive. Oh, that we would have a ready mouth ready to confess. A ready heart that's humbled before the Lord, who realizes our frailty, who realizes our great pride. Amen? Don't you know you're a bunch of proud people? Well, if you, if you don't, I'm telling you this morning, you are. There is sin in your heart, and it desires to have you. It's crouching at the door, but you must master it. Amen? And you have all the resources of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit to do it. Amen? And I would venture to say at this point, you have no choice. You've come to Christ. You know, I mean, God's going to do His good work in you. He's at work in you. So you better work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or you're going to find yourself one of the most miserable people on the face of all the earth. Amen? God help us. God help us. But you know what? Here's the thing. There's such benefit. There's such blessedness in walking in the light of the truth of God's word. Blessed is that man who doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Right? But he's going to be like what? Like a tree planted by rivers of water which brings forth its fruit. And whatever he does, he prospers and his leaf does not wither. Amen? Blessed is that man who walks in repentance continually. Who realizes that God is the source of his strength And that this is the food of his life. Amen? God help us. God help us. Look at Paul praying for the church in Philippians chapter 1. Look what he says. He says, and this I pray, verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more, he says, in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Look what Paul's praying for the church. He wants their love to abound in what? In real knowledge and all discernment. He wants the church to begin to understand the difference between good and evil. He wants the church... to really begin to lay hold of the knowledge of God and to think up here in their brains the way that God thinks. That's what he's praying for the church. But look what he says. For this purpose, he says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless. Friends, that's why we're here. That's why we're dissecting this word, word by word. We're here growing in in real knowledge and discernment so that we can approve those things which God approves. And we can hate those things which God hates. For what purpose? He says there, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Why do we learn this word? So that God's goodness and His righteousness and His truth would be in our hearts. And it would become our goodness and our righteousness and our truth. And that would be the fruit that's hanging from our vines. Amen? May God have his good way in his holy church. He goes on here in verse 11. He says, And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The Christian, he says, is not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Now... (laughs) How many times, in how many ways, has he already said that to us in the last chapter and a half? Right? It's like he just keeps coming at it from a different angle every time. And it's like he's he's just seeking to be as crystal clear as he possibly can. How many times has he told us here in these verses that have gone before us not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness? Right? So he gets to this new analogy... The, the, the last analogy was walk in love, right? And don't live in this immorality and this impurity, but instead in righteousness and goodness and truth. Now now he's, he's into this light thing, and look what he's saying. He's talking about the unfruitful deeds of darkness in contrast to the fruit of light, which is goodness and righteousness and truth, right? And he says here, don't participate. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. The Christian is to have no part in sin, for these are the deeds of darkness. These are unfruitful deeds and bring about no good thing, but rather only destruction. Think about this. What good thing does sin bring about? There is no good thing. Not one. Not one good thing. Sin destroys the sinner and the the ones around it. It brings about no good thing. It's absolutely selfish. It's self-motivated. It's not concerned about anybody else's interests. I mean, I... I don't know if you've ever seen uh, like a situation where you have a husband that runs off with a secretary or something like that. I don't know if you've ever been close to a situation like that. And then you as a Christian, you try to go to that brother and you try to say, hey, hey, man, you know, stop this. You can't do this. What are you doing, man? You've been married for all these years. you got a family. What's going on here? And the guy is just like blind. He cannot see the destructive nature of his actions because he's caught in this web, this trap of sin. Maybe you've seen that. Maybe you haven't. Uh, as a pastor, I've seen that many, many times. And, and I want to tell you, it is the most uh, destructive thing when somebody gets caught in a sin like that and they cannot see for the life of them the destruction it is reaping around them. Sin is a very destructive thing. You want something to teach your kids? Here's something to teach your kids. You teach them that sin will destroy them. Because I want to tell you, it will. It does not bring about any good thing. It brings about the wrath of God. That's what sin brings about. Yes, sir. Sure. Ultimately, well, because God is glorified in His in His wrath, in the display of His wrath. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I think I think that that's a that's a good challenge, Joe. That uh, maybe there is something that's ultimately brought about by by sin, but of course, we would never say that we should sin, that God might be glorified, right? <laughs> no, I mean, really, you're making a point. Yeah, yeah and cer- certainly, right, uh, God is not the author of sin but God did create, if you will a creation in which sin could be lived out and God did make a holy law in the garden right, by which he's going to bring about his purposes in redemption so, so uh, certainly in the ultimate sense right, this is the creation that God made and is turning out just like he intended for it to turn out and, and, and all of that is a manifestation then of his goodness right, so is that kind of where you're going there? And, 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 you know, in in this section of text, though, uh, Paul is very focused in a moral sense on our behavior, right? And so then, in that sense, I would say that there is no good thing that comes from sin except destruction in the sense of the fact that when you participate in it, it will bring only destruction and judgment in your life. And, yes, God will be glorified in that, too. God will be glorified in that, too. And that's a terrible thing to to consider. Amen? I mean, this is what Paul says. He says it's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Amen? So, uh, look what he's saying, though. He calls these the unfruitful deeds of darkness. He's describing what the deeds of darkness don't do. They don't bear any fruit. right? And he says, we cannot participate in them. He says, but instead, he says, even expose them. I wanted to point out this uh, scripture to you uh, in Psalm 11, There the psalmist writes, and he says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. How blessed is that man? Who doesn't do what? What does he mean when he says, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked? Anybody? Okay. He doesn't He doesn't do what sinners say to do. He doesn't follow their counsel, right? He doesn't live their life like a sinner would say you should live their life. What about this one? How about stand in the path of sinners? Anyone? Stand. Hang around with them, right? In other words... We're not like Lot dwelling over there in the tents of Sodom, right? (laughs) I mean, if Lot didn't figure out that at some point all the sin that was around him was going to begin to bear consequences on his life, you with me, right? He's over there standing in the midst of the sinners. God has to rescue him with an angel dragging him out by his hand in the last minute, amen? Amen. You can't be blessed in that place, right? Standing in the way of the sinners. say that talked about Amen. Amen. That's good advice. Don't linger with the sinners, right? Get in there, give them the gospel, and get out of there. <laughs> Amen. Uh, nor sit in the seat of scoffers what that what might that refer to sit in the seat of scoffers Well, okay, so they're laughing at death and they're they're saying, shaking their head those Right, and and that would be scoffing, right? And and uh, and David there says, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And if you will, when he talks about sitting in the seat, he's talking about that place where you make a judgment. Okay you don't make judgments with the scoffers and scoff at, at everything. You see, their hearts are full of scoffing. Right? And their judgments are clouded by their sin. All right? And he, and he says, Blessed is that man who doesn't sit in that place and scoff when he judges. Amen? Blessed is that man who doesn't stand in the tents of Sodom with all of the wicked and linger. Right? Right? Blessed is the man, he says, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who doesn't live the kind of lifestyle the wicked live, and who doesn't follow the advice of wicked, sinful people. You know, you're having problems in your marriage, and you're gonna go to some secular counselor to figure out how to work it out? You're gonna go to the world? You know, you're having disputing with your brother, so you're going to take him to court where some wicked judge is going to sit in judgment over your matters? Amen. God help us. God help us. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Don't participate in their deeds in any way. It's unfruitful. Okay? It's unfruitful. Romans 6, 21, Paul says, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Right? Paul's in Romans 6, he's talking about, uh, uh, you know, striving with sin and, and becoming slaves of righteousness. Right? And and he says, what benefit were you deriving when you were living in sin? What, what benefit was it bringing to you? Right? He says the outcome of those things is death. The outcome, friends, of sin is death. Amen? Not only this, but we here are called to expose or reprove these deeds of darkness. That we are to call to attention to them and to bring... The truth to bear upon them, exposing them to the light of God's truth. Okay? The Greek word for expose here is the word eleko. Eleko. And it means to reprove, right? To confute, to admonish, to convict, to convince, to tell a fault, right? To rebuke or to reprove. Now, what's Paul saying? Now what's Paul saying? Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather reprove them. But rather expose them. I want to give you a biblical example of this. Somebody tell me why Herod beheaded John the Baptist. He told him he was a sinner? He told him he couldn't do what he was doing? What sin did he point out in Herod's life? took his brother's wife. He was an immoral person. He was a fornicator. He was a whoremonger. And you know what? When he came down to see John the Baptist, you know what John the Baptist said? I know what you do, Herod. God's going to judge you for that. You better repent, because the axe is at the root of the tree, Herod. Right? And Herod went away hating John for that. He went away hating John for that. Moreover, his wife hated him twice as bad. Right? Of course, Herod was afraid. He knew John was a prophet. He He knew God would get him. Right? He did the wrong thing. And then his words trapped him in his own folly. Right? And then his wife says, Give me the head of John the Baptist. Right? You know, John the Baptist didn't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, rather, he reproved them. He exposed them to the light of God's truth. Maxine? Correct. Uh, like, there, there the 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 so there's a difference between and <laughs> can win for losing that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we may know- Surely, surely there, there is a proper application of this truth, right? Let me give you an improper application. Um, your your brother in the church calls you and he says, Hey man, can you go to lunch this week? I'm really struggling, I want to talk to you. So you go to lunch and you sit down at the table, and your brother begins to confess this awful wicked sin that he's involved in, right? So you don't run down to the grapevine church and tell the grapevine. You know that person? You know which one I'm talking about? The grapevine. You don't tell the grapevine in the church what's happening in your brother's life. You with me? That's not how you expose the deeds of darkness. You don't bust a confessing, humble sinner over the head with a Bible and take him to task publicly in front of all the church for him to be absolutely ashamed. Especially if at that point he's confessing and he's broken and he's looking to you for help. Amen? And we need to be very careful about the way we approach this idea. Right? But of course, Herod coming out to see John the Baptist baptizing people in the wilderness, what wasn't the humble, broken, repentant sinner confessing his sins? Right? Instead, he was a perfect opportunity for John to call him to account public course, you can see the scene, Herod showing up with all of his entourage. Here I am, the king. Let me come out to see this worm in the wilderness, right? Perfect opportunity for John. You with me? And God gives those, right? And he'll teach you what you need to say at the proper time, amen? But we need to be be careful not to abuse that. We need to be very careful how we use our words and where we use our words and when we use our words. Amen? So then, uh, the idea then of expose is to convict or admonish or tell a fault or rebuke, right? All of this because it is disgraceful or shameful to even mention what sinners do in darkness, much less participate with them. It is for these things that God's wrath is coming, Think about what's being said here. <clears throat> that it's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. Okay? He's not talking about the deeds of the disobedient being shameful, he's talking about mentioning what those deeds are. That is shameful. kind of gives you a sense of how holy we ought to be. That even if in our conversation we happen to mention where somebody is caught in a sin somewhere, or if we're talking about the world and and some of the things that are going on in the culture, Paul says it's even shameful just to mention those things among the saints. My, how far have we fallen? Amen? In the American culture, what we do is we broadcast it real time on everybody's TV. Right? We, we play it out with all kinds of powerful portrayals of emotion and music, and, and we put all of this power, and then we pump that into everybody's living room. Amen? Paul says it's even shameful to mention those things. Again, you know, you have to consider your audience, you have to consider what the Lord is doing, and you giving your testimony there, and be very careful with your words, amen? Because, quite frankly, it's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do. Those kinds of things aren't even to be upon our lips. That's what he's saying, amen? Much less in our thoughts or in our longings. God, help us, amen? Shall we pray? Father God, we desperately want to please you, Lord. We want to learn what is pleasing to you. God, we pray that your goodness and your righteousness and your truth would fill our hearts, God. And may that be the good product that is coming from our lives. I pray, Father, that you would impress these words here in Ephesians 5 our hearts, God. May we never forget them, God. May they just be treasures to us, Lord. May we treasure these commandments and these precepts. We pray, Father, that you'll just continue to do your good work of sanctifying us and cleansing us. Help us, Lord, to see our world as you see our world. Help us, God, to be the children of light. We thank you for your love to us. In Jesus' name we pray.